0: Welcome back, everyone. Welcome to the 4-3. Not the 4-3 defense, but third episode of the fourth season. Um, Fourth season, third episode. I hope the numbers aren't confusing you. Alan, confused?
1: Uh, I am always confused when you're talking.
0: Good. Then mission accomplished. Ladies and gentlemen, we've got a special... Show for you, ancient Rome. Uh, it's everybody's favorite historical subject. Alan, uh, I'm excited about it because we had Don on the show last season. That was a great conversation. I'm expecting great things. What are you uh, hoping for this this episode?
1: Well, to be enlightened a bit, you know the. I tell people a lot of times that the uh, the whole story of Rome is not my greatest subject and people are like why it's a, it's a fascinating subject and and it is but you have to remember that it, it lasted so long it you know the the roman kingdom began uh, 753 bc and then you had the um, you had the roman republic and that ended with the you know when octavian and mark anthony beat each other up and I don't know, was that 27 BC, I think it was, when he declared himself Emperor Octavian, he became Augustus. And then you, from from 27 BC to 476 AD, you know, that's that's a lot of years to sit and know precisely, you know, that, that would be, imagine trying to remember everything about the United States' history, and, you know, we haven't even reached the 250-year mark, so... But you know, I know, I know, uh, I know little bits and pieces of, of Rome. I know uh, bits and pieces of of uh, Greece. You know, I've I've read many books on on Greek history, but that doesn't mean that I am the. I would call myself an expert on uh, on Greece on Greek history or Roman history. So, whenever we get someone such as Don Holloway coming in here with uh, a story about the Roman Empire or, you know, specifics about it, it's it's always great to hear it because I, I always learn something new.
0: Yeah, and I, I think you're right about that. Like, when we say or when somebody says you don't know much about ancient Rome or do you know anything about ancient Rome, I think it's best to, like, break it up into eras. Like, okay, which era are you talking about? Uh, it's just like, you know, history of, you know, the American history. Like, which era are you talking about? American Revolution? Are you talking about, you know, Civil War? Are you talking about turn of the 20th century? It's best to do it like that because there's so much there, but it's all really fascinating. And this uh, 410 era is really fascinating. I loved the book. We're going to get to that in a second. But ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't yet, go ahead and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Um, and while you're at it, if you like this video, click the like button, maybe leave a comment, uh, maybe along the lines of great show, or maybe Dustin, you suck, or maybe Dustin quit blathering the whole time. Like I've, uh, seen before. Uh, thank you very much. Hey, I do have feelings. Just FYI, um, I'm not, as they say on Dumbo, made of rubber. Uh, I do have fillings. I do cry myself to sleep most nights, so just FYI. Also, social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, follow us over there. Um, Road Trip History documentary that we did earlier this year, released that on Eisenhower Nimitz. Go check that out. New military interview, Cold War veteran, a naval intelligence. Uh, go check that out. Also, Alan, have you noticed that we are streaming now? Finally got it up. Uh, first episode on Epoch TV. Uh,
1: no, I have not watched it yet. I have been working on several, several other things uh, for right now. But uh, I'm glad you told me I'm going to hit the Epoch TV and watch it. I, I did. Uh, I did watch our interview with Joe Wolverton. And I, I wanted to correct something that I said on there. I think I, I said it incorrectly. I knew what I was trying to say at the time, but uh, I mentioned about the uh, the militias of the colonial period and the um, and the early early part of uh, American history. Um, when I was jokingly saying about the National Guard, but. No, I did not mean that the militia turned into the national guard. It's something that is claimed by a lot of people that the militia turned into the national guard. It did not. So, if I confused anyone from the Joe Wolverton interview, no, I do not believe that the militia became the national guard. National guard just became a separate little entity on its own. Well,
0: thank you for clarifying. But as you said at the beginning of the show, you're always confused, right?
1: Uh, only. Oh wait, when, no, when that's you, only
0: when I'm talking.
1: Yeah, when you start, what was it? Yeah, you know, in the last week, I was sitting and I asked my first question after what, 20 minutes? And you interrupt. (laughs) So yeah, a lot of people pointed that out to me. They're like, dude, what's up with Dustin and interrupting you as soon as you start talking. So but you know, look, I love you, man. You know, it I I find it humorous. I was not pissed or anything like that. So
0: you love me, your friends hate me. That's fine with me because I don't like any of your friends. Um, all right. So, ladies and gentlemen, you can go check hey, out You, you our know, website. my my
1: friends do watch this and you know you're well, you're, obviously you're making it do. that much harder for me to invite you to some of our events.
0: I um I get invited, I never show up. I it's it's a wash. Um, ladies and gentlemen, if you want, you can go check out our website, thesonsofhistory.com, and Go check out some of our merch gear, like this shirt, uh, Texas one not stolen, because there is that theory going around. Um, and also, you can check out of our stuff, uh, our writings on the Epic Times. So we're going to be talking about the sack of Rome in 410. It's going to be a great conversation. Looking forward to it. But before we do, uh, a little bit of this week in history. What do you say, Alan?
1: I'm ready. I'm ready to go. Let's do it. <music>
0: All right, this is always settled before we start back into this week in history. I was chosen to go first. We choose who goes first, uh, so Alan allowed me to go first. But here is my this week in history, which is technically not this week in history. But seeing that this is the beginning of October, we'll discuss how did October get its name. So the ancient Roman calendar had 12 months, but only 10 of the months actually had names. That was March through December. So October... Octo is Latin for 8, and therefore the 8th month in the Roman calendar was named October. When the Romans changed to a 12-month calendar, they tried to rename some of the months after emperors, including October, but they didn't stick. Everybody liked October best, um, and it is a great month because why? Uh, It's the month of my birthday. Anyways, in Old England, the month was called Wemmanath which means wine month for the time of the year that wine is made, and the English also called October winter Filieth or filleth or something like that, but it means winter full moon, and it's considered uh, that the full moon in October means the start of winter. In other news, in 44 BC, Quintillus was renamed to July after the death of Julius Caesar, and in 8 BC, Sextilis was named to August after, you guessed it, Caesar Augustus. That's all. Go ahead, Alan, and I promise not to interrupt.
1: Okay, you sure about that? <laughs> I, I, You know, I remember the, uh, what was it, the uh, Spider-Man 2, where they had, oh, Doc Ock, he has eight limbs. What are the odds? Anyway, it's a... you're a spider-man 2 fan i like that guy who the anyway let me go with mine all right so um october the 3rd and the 4th of 1993 you know next year will be the uh what is that the 30th anniversary but we'll we'll talk about it today um october 3rd and 4th 1993 was the battle of mogadishu you know, I had a buddy of mine who was in that, uh, Mike Kurth, Specialist Mike Kurth, he was in that battle. So there there are a couple of books that were written on it. Um, if you saw, or you know what, I've got the movie somewhere, the movie Black Hawk Down, and then you've got my friend Mike Kurth wrote the Battle of Mogadishu. Okay, so what was that all about? Well, um, there was genocide going on in Somalia and in uh, 92, uh, before Bush, George H.W. Bush left office, uh, he worked with the United Nations. They sent uh, Marines, they sent soldiers to Somalia as uh, aid workers with the United, with the UN, to to feed the people of Somalia because of all the civil wars. You know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands were dying of starvation. So um, now there was a, a warlord by the name of uh, Mohammed Farid Aidid. He was a warlord in like uh, you know big warlord. I know he had uh big chunks of uh, Mogadishu. I don't know exactly uh what parts of it, but big chunk of it. and uh, he was causing a lot of trouble. He was stealing a lot of the food. so you know a bunch of uh they decided to take him out. the u.s forces decided to take him out and uh they tried on July the 12th bunch of cobra helicopters attacked where there was a planned meeting. the unfortunate thing was that uh, he wasn't there but a lot of the clan uh, leaders were and uh, so now that was pretty much open war against US forces uh, I, I did was encouraged by Osama bin Laden to attack us he called uh, he called us pa- uh, like a paper tiger. And uh, so Idid and his men started targeting U.S. soldiers. Uh, President Clinton decided, hey, I'm going to send some Rangers and some uh, Delta to uh, combat Idid and his men. So uh, they showed up in August. Now, there was uh, intelligence that Idid's lieutenants were going to be meeting in Mogadishu. So, And that was on October the 3rd. So... um, they sent, uh, you know, the Delta, and they sent the uh, Rangers from Mogadishu Airport. They flew on little birds and Blackhawks, and then the Tenth Mountain Division. Uh, they drove in Humvees. The plan was to uh, capture the lieutenants, put them in the Humvees, and drive them back uh, so that we could, so that they could be interrogated and find ID. Well, things didn't really go too well. Um, there was a uh, a private first class named uh, Todd Blackburn who lost his grip and he fell and he was out. I mean, uh, and they had to come and rescue him, uh, put him in the Humvees and send him back to Mogadishu, right in the middle of of all the fighting. Um, during that time, there was a, uh, a Sergeant Dominique Pilla, he, or Pia or Pilla, I'm not sure, uh, P-I-L-L-A. He was he was hit by a sniper. He was like the first guy killed, and then it just went and it unraveled from there. Um, there were two Black Hawks that were shot down, uh, which resulted in there were two Delta snipers that uh, tried to take cover of one of the one of the Black Hawks. Um, that, that pilot, and he survived, but he ended up getting captured. And the two Delta, they were overwhelmed. The two Delta snipers were overwhelmed. They were, they were killed and then dragged through the streets of Mogadishu. They both ended up, uh, getting the uh, Medal of Honor. So, uh, yeah, it, it was, uh, it was a big screw up. It became an 18 hour battle, uh, Pakistan and Malaysia, uh, along, uh, with the 10th mountain went in to go, uh, get the guys out of there. Uh, Pakistan and Malaysia each lost uh, one, one. Each one one lost and uh, killed killed in action, and they had several wounded. We ended up having about eighteen killed, um, over seventy were wounded, and one POW. That was one of the Black Hawk uh, pilots. And um, you know the Somalis. You know Bowden, who wrote uh, this book, said there were about seven hundred Somalis killed. 1, wounded but there were higher estimates nobody knows exactly um, you know one of the heroic moments was known as the Mogadishu mile where our guys got some of our guys got left behind and they had to you know hump it for for about a mile after 18 hours and they were in the heat so uh, one, one of the little her- heroic stories but anyway uh, if you watch the movie uh Black Hawk Down you know I know I've got ever here we go I've got uh, one of them right here. This is one of the older copies I have. Black Hawk Down, you have the book, and you have the movie, and then you've got the battle, again, the Battle of Mogadishu. Uh, My friend Mike Kurth, who was in that battle, was one of the guys who wrote it. So that is uh, October 3rd, October 4th, 1993.
0: All right, ladies and gentlemen, while we will not hold you up any longer, we've got Don Hallway. He is ready to go. He joined us last season to discuss his first book, The Last Viking, which is a very cool book. It's about King Harold Hardrada. Um, Encourage you to check that out. It's by Osprey Publishing. Um, So he's a regular contributor to History Magazine, Military Heritage, Military History, Renaissance Magazine, and a lot more. Does a lot of stuff. He's also a history reenactor, which you will sort of get a a glimpse at with his background. Uh, It's pretty cool stuff. He's got all all this materiel, if you will. And he's got a new book. It is called At the Gates of Rome, The Fall of the Eternal City, A.D. Full 10. And without further ado, we've got our good friend Don Hallway on the line. Don, how are you doing, man?
2: I'm great. Thanks for having me back.
0: Hey, you're very welcome. Um, We had a great time uh, last season talking about... I uh, believe your first book, *The Last Viking*, so that was a lot of fun. Um, so we were really looking forward to this conversation about um, Rome. I guess you would say somewhat ancient Rome, although it's uh, several centuries in 410. Um, what did what did you th- what did you enjoy most uh, writing *The Last Viking* or writing this this recent book *At the Gates of Rome*?
2: You know, I knew the story of The Last Viking before I wrote it. I mean, I didn't know the details of it, but I knew Harold uh, Hadrada's life, you know, the general arc of his story. Uh, When when I signed up to do uh, Gates of Rome, I knew how the story went in general terms. And I knew there was an interplay between uh, Alaric and Stilicho, but I didn't know the details of it. And for me, that's part of the fun of writing any book, uh, you know, is, is going in and being able to learn that stuff. And get paid for it. I mean, that's that's the best part.
0: Yeah, that's that is the best part. Uh Alan and I have no idea what that feels like. Um, we do this show for free. Uh so <laughs> it looks like that will be the case for the foreseeable future.
1: Um uh, Well, I wrote I did write an unpublished uh book when I was in elementary school about dinosaurs, but uh, you know, it's like most of the uh, epic cycle, it's lost work.
0: And Yeah. Um, do you still have the copy of that, Alan?
1: No, I said it's, it's. Uh, I, I, that's why I said it's like the epic cycle. It's a lost work or a, a majority oh, of it. Okay. But uh, yeah, that, no, that was an elementary school, but uh, it was, it's about 20 some pages. But, you know, for a fourth or fifth grader, I think that's pretty good.
2: That's funny. I started... I started doing that too in elementary school. You, uh, I don't know if you call it aptitude or something, but something you enjoy doing. I mean, I, I was writing when I was in elementary school as well. It's like a compulsion or something.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, I'm I'm the same way. Um, you know, as a kid, just always writing, um, and then eventually, I guess, sort of, you would you could say turn it into a career. Um, journalism and then marketing and then back sort of into journalism doing a bunch of stuff for the epic times but enough of that let's talk about uh, your new book at the gates of Rome uh, General Flavius Stilicho and Alaric King of the Goths in your book sort of early into the book you wrote this uh, men followed Stilicho because he was in command Alaric commanded because men followed him what Fraud and so what's the difference between, or what was the difference between Alaric and Stilicho?
2: Well, Stilicho, uh, becoming a Roman general, he was sort of born with you know the proverbial silver spoon in his mouth. Uh, his uh, his father was a cavalry officer. His father was actually a vandal, a barbarian, uh, but his father was apparently married to a some important uh, Roman woman. We don't know much about her, but she must have been important. Because uh, Stilicho, at a young age, was enlisted into the Imperial Bodyguard, which served as a training ground for future officers. So he really got started out, uh, you know, well, that would be like getting sent to West Point or something like that, being groomed for higher command. Whereas Alaric uh, of the Goths, uh, he, was, uh, they, he was claimed to have royal heritage, but I think that maybe did not come into his story until he became you know, uh, became more or less the king of the Goths. He could well have been a nobody. We're not even sure that Alaric is his real name. It might have been a name applied to him later on in life. But he started out, uh, you know, your typical barbarian uh, with the Goths and became, he enlisted in the legions for a little while, just got basic training, but soon deserted and actually became a Bandit chieftain, and that's really where he uh, first started showing off his aptitude for leadership. He took a bunch of, uh, you know, deserters, bandits, and at one point uh, came within a hair's breadth of, of assassinating or capturing the emperor at the time, as the emperor was traveling between uh, between cities. So he proved himself earlier on, and they came they came together. Uh, because Stilicho was assigned to capture Alaric or kill him, as the case may be, Uh, took his army into the swamps where Alaric and his men were were basically hiding out, drove them into the mountains and had them trapped in a valley. But as so often through their career, Alaric managed to uh, weasel out of this and was actually, uh, the emperor decided at the time that he needed troops and Alaric's men were obviously you know, pretty skilled, so he enlisted them instead of having them put to death. So that was their first meeting uh, still ago, trying to capture Alaric and being pulled back at the last minute.
1: So let me ask you, I want to understand, and I, and I've heard stories about Rome hiring uh, the barbarians as their auxiliaries. Mm-hmm. What was the story about that? Was it that the Roman citizens just didn't want to fight? I mean, why? Why go to the barbarians um, uh, as, as auxiliary soldiers? I mean, it, to me, it seems like that you're, you're committing a suicide.
2: Well, that's kind of the way it turned out in the end. But at the time, uh, what you said about the Roman citizens not wanting to fight, there was a good bit of that. Uh, the rich landowners did not want to give up their tenant farmers or slaves even into the army. They wanted to keep their power. Uh, a lot of the barbarians came in and saw that as an easy way to join the empire was to fight for them for a little while. And uh, actually, after the Battle of Adrianople, uh, where the Goths uh, basically wiped out the Eastern uh, Roman Empire army, Rome just needed troops and would take anybody. And they gathered up what they could and basically fought the rest of the fought the Goths to a standstill. But then again, Theodosius decided. You know, these guys are obviously capable troops and the Goths wanted to become Romans. That was their whole thing through their whole through the whole history of the book. They wanted to be Romans. So Theodosius said, we'll use your manpower in the army and uh, and bring you in as Federati, which is not quite citizens, but, uh, you know, allies in in the Roman Empire.
1: Do you see any uh, parallels in with today with what's going on with our country where, hey, you, you come in. And, uh, you know, we'll make you—I don't know if we uh, make them U.S. citizens, but I I keep hearing people encouraging the idea of people who come here illegally that, you know what, if we just put them in our military, then, hey, they deserve to be U.S. citizens. And, I I mean, I can't help but seeing parallels because we don't know who we're we're bringing in here. A lot of these people don't believe in the same— type of, um, you know, the liberal democracy or or a constitutional democracy that, that we have today? Or, I mean, do you see parallels or am I being?
2: Oh, I get that question on every interview about this book. And that's part of the reason I went into it, too. I wanted to see what the parallels were. And uh, I'm always conscious of my audience in these interviews, because with the way things are in this country, you can't say anything politically without ticking off you know, half the half the people in the in the country, but yeah, I, I do see parallels. I, I I see a lot of parallels with uh, what went on in Rome before the interview. We were talking, and I was re- refreshing myself with the book last night. And there are a lot of quotes, not by me, but by the historical people in the book. And I was just thinking, you could pull that quote right out and put that on a newspaper today. It would practically be you know, realistic. I mean, so much of what was going on has parallels. And the big one that I draw towards the end of the book is what you were talking about. Uh, The Romans brought the Goths in. uh, uh, Basically, for the Goths, it amounted to a successful invasion. They came in, they destroyed the army, uh, the Roman army, and the Romans couldn't, didn't have the power to kick them out. And so for the Goths, they became Roman citizens. Well, not Roman citizens, again, Federati but they became part of the empire. They moved into the empire uninvited. And uh, I make the point in the book that immigration isn't really the issue, it's assimilation. If uh, people want to move into a certain place, uh, that's all well and good. I can't fault anybody for wanting to come to this country. But at the same time, you can't bring in the things, the lifestyles, the culture that failed you in the old country, bring that here and try to set it up here and i think that's where the romans made a mistake and i question if we're making that same mistake
0: so so to those to those points um the the goths seemed to want to be part of rome like that was that was a the thing they knew that rome was that was the place to be um right. they wanted their citizenship to be like with rome and they would uh, benefit from that greatly and the parallels is, and I know that we've, we've taken from, from one side, but what do you think about the other side with in ancient Rome, you had groups like the Goths who wanted to become Roman citizens. The Roman citizens were living this sort of this life of luxury and protection um, and beauty within Rome. They didn't want the Goths to be Roman citizens, but they wanted them to do all the dirty work uh, for them. This sort of is similar to where we are as well, where you have a lot of people that are coming. I saw a clip just yesterday of some Cubans coming in on a boat during this hurricane um just to make it here, right? And I've I've entered I've talked to some Cuban refugees or people who came over and immigrated from Cuba and they're like, we love it here. Like People in Cuba and in various places, Latin America and in in Eastern Europe, they want to come here because they know America is the best, much like people thought Rome was the best. Um, And it's like, I see a lot more, and this, I may be wrong, but I see a lot more homegrown Americans who despise republicanism um, and, and the way the country is founded than those who are coming in. Um, and wanting to as you said leave the old country ways behind because it sucked otherwise they wouldn't have dropped everything and come over here right. we, I, I see we're sort of stuck in the middle um what do you think is the the bigger problem america or the romans not accepting the goths or the goths not assimilating or which was the bigger problem
2: well, yeah, it's it's sort it's sort of the same thing. They didn't they the Goths didn't assimilate because basically the Romans would not let them assimilate. There was a lot of anti-barbarian uh, sentiment in Rome, and they did not want the Goths, who had destroyed again, destroyed an army. They did not want them coming in. There was a lot of pushback against this and uh, the emperor just sort of overrode that. It's like, we need, we need to fill out the ranks in the army because the Goths weren't the only enemy. If you look at a map of Europe uh, and trace, uh, say, the Rhine River from, you know, from over at the North Sea, that runs up into the highlands of Germany near the headwaters of the Danube, and the Danube runs to the west of the rest of the way over to the Black Sea. That was basically the northern border of the, of the empire, and everybody north of that was uh you know barbarian they were outsiders the Goths came in across the Danube because they were being pushed from behind by the Huns. The Romans knew the Huns were out there but didn't really have any firsthand experience with them yet. Uh there were just trickles of these Hunnish raiders that were coming across the river, but they didn't realize the whole, you know, Hunnish horde was out there. But the Goths knew it. They just wanted to come in, you know, give us shelter, you know, from this. We we're not looking to make trouble. We'll just we'll just come across the river I mean there's another parallel there with immigrants coming across a river and they did come across the river they, the Romans left them come across but they penned them basically on the riverbank and uh, just abused them horribly I mean took advantage of them uh, sold them dog meat to eat and uh, took their took some of their children to be raised as slaves and uh, just treated them abominably until the Goths just finally just got off the reservation and, and rose up against it, against the injustice. So I think that's, in going back to your question, I think it's a mixture of the two. The Goths did want to be Roman, but the Romans did not want the barbarians to become Roman. They saw that as a, uh, a degrading of Roman citizenship. I mean, there were even uh, laws passed against wearing trousers because the Goths wore you know trousers whereas the romans wore not togas but you know the typical things that you see the go- the romans wearing in the movies not trousers and, and there were laws passed that the romans said nope nobody no citizens wear trousers so there was there was that much sentiment against the barbarians
1: now do you uh do you see parallels um with uh stilicho and is, is it Honor- honorius how do you pronounce the emperor I always pronounce it Honorius. Yeah. Okay. Do you see parallels with Stilicho and Honorius versus uh, Marshal Zhukov and Joseph Stalin?
2: Oh, I thought you were going to bring Biden in. <laughs> 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 Dodged the bullet there. Zhukov and Stalin. Uh, that's a different question. I, uh, You know, Stalin, say what you want to say about him, but he was no dummy. Uh,
1: well, I'm not comparing Honorius to Stalin, I'm comparing the relationship between between uh Stilicho with Honorius and comparing it with Zhukov and Stalin yeah. because Zhukov was considered the great general of uh of uh you know the Great Patriotic War as the Soviets called it. Uh, but Stalin got a little got a little jealous, didn't like it. So but I mean I granted he didn't get Zhukov killed, but he pretty much had him banished.
2: Killed uh... a lot of the other officers. That's for sure. Yeah, purged, purged the whole army. Yeah, I, there might be a parallel there, but I mean, you have to remember that Honorius, uh, through most of this period, was a kid, and uh, was treated as a kid. I mean, Stilicho raised him as a foster father, and uh, I make the point in the book that Stilicho did not really raise Honorius to be competent. He didn't really raise him to rule. He raised Honorius so that Stilicho could rule through him, and I'm not sure that I'm not sure that Stalin and Zukov had that kind of relationship. Uh, Stalin basically didn't trust anybody. Where I think Honorius did trust whoever was putting words or putting thoughts into his head. I mean that was that was a lot of the reason for Stilicho's downfall. As long as he was controlling Honorius, everything was fine. But the minute his back was turned. Some of uh, uh, Stilicho's rivals at court, you know, got hold of Honorius's ear and then turned him against him and, and things started going downhill quick.
0: So your your book um, sort of obviously parallels the two, Stilicho and Alaric. They, you, you mentioned that they were in the same vicinity uh, and in the same, sometimes like the same types of meetings and everything, but they may have not actually met each other for a while, but you see their as they, they rise in power, what was the relationship eventually between the two? And was there, it seemed in the book that they respected each other, at least their abilities uh, for military tactics and fighting.
2: Yeah, I don't think you can look at it any other way. I, I make the point that Stilicho defeated Alaric on the field. Uh, Stilicho was one of the few uh, people that could reliably defeat Alaric on the field. And yet, Alaric always, always got away. He maybe didn't even get away is the right way to put it. Stilicho always left him go. I mean, there has to have been this uh, mutual respect. They started out as adversaries, but as time went on and the Goths uh, achieved more and more power, they became the they became the tipping point in the balance of power between the East and West. Uh, the eastern and western empires and Stilicho as you know the military head of the west saw the value of having Alaric as an ally and uh, that, that's really when things started going south for Stilicho when he enlisted Alaric and they were actually laying plans to make a war on the eastern empire and of course then Stilicho was accused of treason and uh, colluding with uh, with barbarians and and that was the beginning of his downfall.
0: As as I'm reading the book, and as I I, I made mention that, you know, reading both of your books, I enjoyed both of them immensely. But uh, at the Gates of Rome, I enjoyed more because of just the whole ancient Rome thing. But from my perspective, at the end, Stilicho and Alaric come across as more or less tragic figures. And more from my perspective, Stilicho than Alaric. But Stilicho seems to constantly be saving Rome, constantly saving the Republic, constantly saving the Empire. And yet, as we mentioned at the beginning, he had barbarian blood in him. Therefore, the Roman citizens had this distrust toward him or just this dislike. Um, Was Stilicho appreciated by the Romans?
2: Yeah, I think he was. I mean, there was a lot of factionalism going on. I mean, whenever 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 a guy achieves power, there's always immediately gonna be somebody plotting to take it away from him. So there were plenty of, he wouldn't have made it where he did if he didn't have a lot of people on his side. Uh, The emperor Theodosius really paved the way for him by making him uh, appointing Stilicho, the guardian of his son Honorius, and supposedly the guardian of the Eastern emperor, his other son Arcadius. Uh, That was a lot of the, uh, the bone of contention Uh, that came up against Stilicho. Stilicho proclaimed that Theodosius had made him guardian of both emperors, east and west. Well, that was okay in the west because Honorius was only like uh, 10 years old, something like that. But over in the east, Arcadius was old enough he didn't need a guardian anymore and uh, he had his own courtiers who were, you know, whispering in his ear as well and they did not want Stilicho coming over to the east and uh, bossing, bossing them around over there. So there was there was the big faction against him there, and again, as you say, the anti-barbarian sentiment. Yeah, that worked against him as well. So he was respected, but he had plenty of people who did uh, did not like him and would have wanted to see him come down.
0: I, reading your book, I got the this, I guess the sentiment that Alaric watched Stilicho fall, and he sort of viewed it as an anti-barbarian move against Stilicho and therefore he just that encouraged him even more or lit the fire even more under Alaric to sack Rome was it more was it sort of like that like he was taking out not just his vengeance on never being accepted as a Roman citizen because of barbarian blood but also because of what the Romans did to Stilicho
2: I think you know I don't want to. I don't want to say that they were buddy buddy. I mean, they Alico and Stilric certainly respected each other, but it wasn't like they were, you know, uh, man bros or anything like that. Uh, and when Stilico was killed, that really left Alaric, who was uh, who was in, in the in the in between the empires, there. That really left Alaric as the most capable military leader in the West at that point. He, I mean, he had he had his own army. They had been marching back and forth uh, between the empires at that point, and when Stilicho was dead, Alaric actually went to Honorius, the emperor, and said, "You know, here I am. You've got these problems. You've got rebellions up in, in Gaul. You know, I I'm here. I'm a proven leader. I've got an army. Let me fight for you. Appoint me. Appoint me as a general." And Honorius wouldn't have it because Alaric was a barbarian.
1: You know, I still find it interesting that um, now. You might have to correct me on this one now emperor valens that was the that was the emperor who was killed at adrianople right okay all right um and it was the goths or the visigoths who killed him correct
2: yeah i i make a point i hear them referred to as the visigoths a lot and from everything i saw or i researched i don't think that term actually came up until about 100 years later these were just goths at this point Uh, About 100 years later, you had the Visigoths who were living in Spain and the Ostrogoths, the Eastern Goths who were living in Italy. And that's that's really when they were two different peoples. But I have, uh, you know, just I I call them the Goths again, just through this book. What was your
1: uh, (laughs) I I mean, I'm just astonished that that they allowed them in, that they allowed them as citizens, allowed them as as part of the soldiers. This I mean, this is going to pertain more to my earlier question, but I mean, mean, that happened, what, 20, maybe uh, 30 years before the uh, the sacking of Rome, 20, it was what, in the 80s, 380s? So, and it was only in the, what's that?
2: I think it was 378 off the top of my head, I'm not sure.
1: I, for some reason I want to say 387, but I don't think that's right. But, I mean, I think, well, you're the one who knows, you know this material more than I, maybe it was in the 380s is what I thought, but regardless it still was only within i mean people who lived through it would have still been alive by 410 and what astonishes me is the fact that you know here's here's a group of uh of people the 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 goths who killed uh, the the, the uh, i guess he was the eastern emperor at the time and right. Right. and then here here they are now they're part of the army and it, i'm still grasping with that whole idea cuz right, that right, would right be really like
2: Rome really didn't have a lot of choice in the East. Again, the Eastern army had been pretty much annihilated at at Adrianople. And for uh, a while after that, the Goths were just marching back and forth over Thrace and uh, the the surrounding lands and just basically bullying cities into giving them contributions. Uh, The Romans could either uh, you know, suffer through that or try and give the Goths what they originally wanted, which was, you know, to make them part of the empire. And they did not make them citizens. They made them federati, again, which is a kind of subclass of citizens, not quite citizenship. But they had been doing that with barbarians for hundreds of years, all, all you know, a lot of the Germans had come across, they did it with the, the Britons in England, they did it with the Gauls in France, Uh, They had a long tradition of taking people who came into the empire and making them citizens, but they just failed to do that with the Goths. And I think a lot of that was because the Goths had come in and basically pulled off a successful invasion by killing the army at, at Adrianople. And there was a lot of resentment against the Goths. Theodosius, the emperor, had a lot of pushback against his policy towards them, but he really did not have that much choice. He had to fill the ranks of the army and deplete the Goth army at the same time. And the way to do that was make the Goth army a Roman army.
1: I'm glad I took your word for it, because I just looked it up, and yeah, it it was 378. But uh, now when Valens died, did Theodosius, did he take over uh, the eastern half of the empire?
2: He did eventually, not not immediately. uh, Gratian, the Western emperor at that time, uh, had his hands full with his own Germans up beyond the Rhine, uh, and he, you know, the reason they had split the empire was because with the communications lag between the two sides, it was just too big for one man to handle you know, by the time he would react, things had already moved past on the other side. So they had to have an eastern emperor, and he basically pulled Theodosius out of his hat. Theodosius had, uh, had been a military commander, and his father, Theodosius the Elder had, uh, you know, maybe some imperial aspirations himself, but he was mysteriously killed, uh, executed. And we're not really sure what for, but the theory is that maybe he had some designs on the uh, imperial throne himself. So Theodosius was no stranger to handling barbarians. He had done it in uh, England uh, and done it in North Africa. He was a guy who, with proven ability to uh, take control of, the, of barbarians, so Gratian appointed him uh, Eastern Emperor.
0: You know, uh, talking about allowing the Goths, after they uh, defeated the Eastern Army, um, into the Roman army, uh, it's sort of like the Trojan horse, but without the horse.
2: Yeah, there is, there is a good bit of that, and they, they used the Goths while they needed them, But if you move ahead a few years, there's another uprising in in the West. Uh, Gratian, the emperor there, has been assassinated. Uh, There's a new emperor, um, and they're basically rising up, and Theodosius needs to go put them down. He puts the Goths in the front of his army at the Battle of Frigidus, and basically it's a two-day battle, and the Goths lost half their number. He basically used them as, you know, sacrificial pawns. There were even historians at the time that said that was why he did it. He, you know, he had filled out the ranks of his army, but here they were. He was going to push them out and let them let them do the bleeding and dying while he kept his Romans in, uh, you know, in reserve. Uh, So that's that's how you see the Goths getting used.
1: I was going to mention I have a a book here on uh, uh, written by Gildas and Nennius and uh, uh gildas i believe is the one that uh, he wrote about the 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 dark ages of britain right. now they uh, the romans left britain in 410 same year as the sack of rome did they leave because of the sack of rome or did they see the alarm bells and they left but didn't get to rome in time
2: uh they actually Were staging the 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 Romans in Britain were actually staging their own rebellion. They had chosen their own their own emperor uh, from their own ranks, and uh, because the at this point things were going so badly in the West, Honorius basically told uh, Britain, you know, you guys are across the Channel. We just cannot support you anymore. We got our hands full with things that are going on down here. Uh, You're on your own and the, uh, the British legions basically just raised up one of their own guys and declared him emperor. Uh, that's not the first time they had done that. The Emperor Constantine the Great was actually a room, uh, commander in York in Britain, and that legion decided to name him uh, emperor. So it's not the first time that happened, but all the legions pulled out. I believe they actually pulled out like 408, I want to say, 407, 408, something like that, and moved over, you know, came across the channel and sort of set up shop in Gaul and started basically saying, you know, join us here, join our emperor, or we'll make war on you. So at that point, yeah, that whole section of the uh, of the empire was becoming full of rebels.
0: You mentioned, um, and I think this is mentioned everywhere as far as uh, ancient Roman history, that the empire became too big. Um, to control too untenable. How untenable was it once they split it between east and
2: west? Well, you know, obviously that halves the uh, half's the problem. You know, the, of the communication, your your orders only have to go half as far to reach the end of your section of the empire. Uh, it made it easier, uh, made it easier to communicate. Obviously, but I think uh, I'm losing my train of thought here. The way, the way things set up almost because they were two different cultures. The Eastern part, uh, they were way more Greek in outlook. They spoke Greek. Uh, you know, they were basically classical Greece with Roman bureaucracy laid over top of them. That was a, a, lot, of the, a lot of the trouble. The West was, you know, they were, they were basically carrying on the old Western Roman traditions. So there almost became a kind of Cold War between the two of them. Uh, And that was a lot of what Alaric took advantage of, Uh, the Goths more or less marching back and forth in the sort of no man's land there in northern Greece. Uh, They became the tipping factor and Alaric became very skilled at uh, when he was having problems in the West. He would, you know, go to the East and get support from them and vice versa Uh, when he was uh, invading, invading uh, over towards the East. Uh, Stilicho at one point was fighting him, trying to stop him from doing that. And a couple years later, Stilicho was basically saying, hey, I'll join you if you want to, I'll support you if you want to invade the East. Alaric became uh, very skilled at playing the two empires against each other.
0: Well, along with splitting the empire in two, East and West, you've also got paganism and Christianity sort of clashing. What, what was the difficulty between paganism and Christianity?
2: Well, it wasn't only between paganism and Christianity. It was between the various sects of Christianity at this time. I mean, Christianity in four, you know, the late 300s, early 400s was still a very young religion, and they hadn't sorted out their doctrines. And of course, you have uh, one set of Christians over here saying, well, obviously it's like this, and you've got another set of Christians over here saying, no, it's obviously like that. And either side side considers the other one to be heretics. And uh, I make the point in the book that a lot of the Christians actually uh, felt better about pagans because they could be converted to Christianity. Their souls weren't lost. But anybody who viewed the wrong type of of Christianity, adhered to the wrong beliefs, they were heretics and needed to be destroyed. You you found a lot of that. Uh, Paganism was... uh, uh, it was still a force, but Christianity was becoming stronger and stronger. Uh, Theodosius made it the state religion, uh, outlawed a lot of the old temples. And that, again, that was a source of uh, strife against him. A lot of the pagans objected to that, but uh, it was an unstoppable force.
1: Are you a fan of um, Hel- the, uh, the historian Hilaire Belloc? Again, I'm not sure if I'm mentioning his name correctly. Uh,
2: (laughs) You mentioned him in the uh, in our last interview. I think I'm I'm familiar. I know who he is, but I'm not uh, familiar with his work.
1: Well, he um, in one of his works, he said that the uh, that the Roman Empire didn't really die. It just kind of lived on in a different method. You had the um, the elite of Rome when the when the government fell in 476. They just carried on, and they became the kings. They became the dukes. Uh, do you do you share that thinking, or uh, I mean, what are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, the uh, the sack of four hundred and ten was not was not the endpoint of the Western Empire, but I mean, it was definitely the beginning of the end. I mean, like you say, it struggled on for another couple of decades, and at the end, uh, the Roman emperors were basically just puppets uh, that the. Uh, um, barbarian overlords were putting in place. And finally, at the end, uh, the barbarians just said, you know what, we don't actually need a Roman emperor. They're going to do like you said, they're going to, you know, make themselves King of Italy. And, uh, and yeah, they, the Roman traditions, they actually, they did carry on with the Senate. Even the barbarians carried on with the Senate. I don't know if that was just for show or if they were really, you know, using the Senate for what it was designed for, but, uh, the barbarians did aspire to be Rome, to be Romans, long after Rome had fallen. Uh, they, you know, they they still looked up to that as a peak of civilization.
1: Well, I just, you know, I guess one of the reasons why I mention him a lot is uh, I've read his works about the the late antiquity, and uh, you know, I became a big fan of his uh, when I was in Paris. I went to the cemetery he was buried in, which is the same one as Jim Morrison. So, um. Yeah, so I like I like I liked to discuss him, but uh, it it I, I just found it interesting that with the collapse of the Roman Empire or the Western one at least, that the uh, many of the traditions just kind of you know carried on and uh, you know and then we had all those kingdoms, duke and the the duchies and earldoms and whatnot that uh, principalities that formed afterwards. So right.
2: well, duke and count, they were all. Uh those were Roman terms. I mean, you had dukes, D-U-X was uh, the Latin term, and comies, uh was uh, the Roman word for count. So a lot of those, uh, you know, ranks did carry over to the barbarians. And as far as the Eastern Empire goes, I mean, that never really fell. I mean, you see that going on as the Byzantine Empire up for another thousand years. I think it was late 1400s until that was finally conquered. So, uh, Uh, Yeah, you see the whole standard of democracy and, you know, republicanism to a certain extent. uh, Yeah, being carried on by the by the barbarians, they recognized that that was a good thing to do a good thing to have, and they tried to set it up themselves. But you see feudalism medieval feudalism developing out of the uh, the farming system that was going on in, in Europe, you know, the landholders and their workers who owed, you know, their existence to the landowner? Who owed his power to, you know, his workers, etc. That sort of developed into feudalism within a couple of hundred years.
0: So you have the fall of the Roman Empire, but you have the the Byzantine Empire come along, and then the Holy Roman Empire come along. Would you say that we are in uh, sort of the the Roman Empire still with how we, I guess, gravitate towards? Western civilization through republicanism and democracy
2: uh, that's a good question I mean it depends depends on who you ask I mean I, I talked about the cold War between the east and the and the West and you know we've certainly had that you uh, could say with the way things are going right now we're right back in it again I you know with the things going on over in Ukraine and Russia uh, you can draw you can draw the parallels to a certain extent you know, who was it that said uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes? It's, it's sort of the same thing. Uh, you know, we're not exactly a repeat of the Roman Empire, but there are so many parallels going on here that uh, I think you have to look at it uh, to, to find an example of what they did wrong so that we don't repeat the mistakes.
1: You know, the Russians like to say that they carried on the mantle of um, the Eastern Empire when Constantinople fell.
2: Do
1: you agree with that?
2: You know the Roman uh, Sars before uh, before the revolution. That was basically a corruption of you know Caesar. They they did try to set themselves up that way. There was any number of uh, European kingdoms that tried to replicate uh, replicate Rome. I mean, if you look at Charlemagne setting up his uh, you know the Frankish Empire and everything, uh, he didn't rely so much on um, uh, you know a senate or Republicanism as much, but he was trying again. To extend his power and set up his own empire in Europe, which was basically, I guess, well, there were some smaller ones in there. The Goths had their own kingdom going for a while, but it was really Charlemagne who finally dragged Europe, you know, started getting them out of the Dark Ages and uh, you know, back on the right road again.
1: Yeah, a bit ironic that the uh, the Pope was the one who declared him an emperor, and I I don't think uh, Charlemagne didn't like that very much.
2: <laughs> well, there was a big uh, a lot of argument about that because the the Easters thought uh, that they were uh, that that's even going on at this point in the uh, late 300s, early 400s. You you had multiple popes. There was a there was a Pope of Alexandria. There was a Pope of Rome. There was a Pope of Constantinople, and they hadn't really sorted out who was the you know the pope of popes yet uh so there was a lot of power shifting going on and you're right the byzantines objected to the holy roman empire calling itself the holy roman empire because they saw themselves as the the byzantines saw themselves as the continuation of the roman empire and for my money i think they had a better claim to it but uh you know that's just my opinion
0: fascinating stuff man um I thoroughly enjoyed the book, ladies and gentlemen. the The book is called "At the Gates of Rome: um, Fall of the Eternal City." eighty four ten Don. It was a, it was a lot of fun reading the book. I will say this: it was one of my favorite books, maybe top five of my favorite books of the past year. I just I just zoomed right through it, and I um, thank you for for writing it, um, and thanks for joining <laughs> us that. on the show. <laughs>
2: that's that's the kind of compliment I like. To get that it was uh, that it was easy to read and uh, you know informative at the same time. That's the highest compliment a, a writer can get. I thank you.
0: Yeah, man, um, and thanks for for joining us on the show. We uh, greatly appreciate it. It was good to see you again.
2: Yeah, I appreciate being here. I'm working on uh, the next book, which is actually uh, kind of uh, it's kind of like both the both the Roman book and the Last Viking. It's actually a prequel to uh, the Harold Hadrada story. Uh, it's about the Vikings, the Anglo Saxons, and the Normans in the years leading up to uh, uh, the Battle of Hastings in 1066. So uh, that's on, I'm halfway through the draft of that. Hopefully that's going to be out next year.
0: Well, that's going to be, yeah, that'll be exciting. I can't wait to read that one because um, you're two for two, at least with me uh, so far. So.
1: All right. <laughs> if you ever get a chance to write about the, um, the, um, the British dark ages. I I'll be, I would love to read about that one. Cause I haven't seen too much uh, information on that one.
2: You know, I've looked into that a little bit when I was hunting around for the, you know, an idea for the book, that, that's a fascinating period. I mean, right, right around, right around this time of the fall of Rome, you start to see the Saxons are coming over, uh, basically being pirates at that time, like proto Vikings almost coming in and, uh, uh, not so much invading England, but, sort of coming over and more and more of them come over and uh you talked about gildas he writes about that a good bit uh you know the dark ages in, in britain i think that's a fascinating time i'm not sure how much source material there is uh how many accounts there are but again when i start writing uh have i've always found when i start writing a book you'll come across one source and they'll refer to another one, and you go look at that one, and they'll refer you to another one. So there's a lot more material out there than you think. I would have to look into that a little bit.
1: It was around that time, supposedly mythologically, uh, that uh, Arturo was uh, running things in Britain. Believe it? Yes or no? What do you think on that?
2: You know, I he's certainly not the he's certainly not the author that. Uh, Uh, You read about in the, you know, the legends, the the little more or however you pronounce it. He's certainly not that guy. I think he was uh, from what little bit I know about him. I think he was more or less of a glorified bandit chief, but uh, it was, you know, an anarchic time in Britain. in those years after Rome got out and anybody who could uh, set himself up and exert a little power and call himself king. You know, that's the stuff the legends are made out of. So. That would be an interesting topic as well
1: well thank you for thank you for doing this because we certainly don't want to forget this history and um you know you've uh, you've done a lot for western civilization as far as i'm concerned
2: <laughs> high praise indeed <laughs> thank you
0: you, you have single handedly saved western civilization don um
2: i'll put that on my headstone <laughs> Well,
0: yeah as, as you said this is this is where legends come from right <laughs> this is how they're if we just make them well, up. well
1: i'm just i'm just waiting for uh a lot of these guys uh Laric and many others to be canceled uh, because they, they didn't live up to the standards that we have today
2: yeah
0: yeah we we've got we've got great standards today we've got Great standards. I don't even want to get into, uh, yeah, as we sanction the butchering of children. Yeah, great standards. Anyways, um, not to leave on a really sour note, but.
2: <laughs> yeah, we, we digressed a little bit.
0: <laughs> just a little bit, as we tend to do on this show. Don, uh, it's great to see you again. When your book comes out, we look forward to, to reading it and having you back on the show.
2: Absolutely. I'll be thrilled. Thanks again. You got it.
1: Thank you.
0: Well, that was a great conversation. Interestingly enough, you mentioned uh like the dark ages. I think you said the dark ages of Britain. And he uh, said there's not a whole lot to go off of, is that right?
1: Well, yeah, that's why they call them the dark ages. Um the uh, um now he he mentioned that the uh, that the Roman soldiers uh, left, the Roman legions left around 407. Um I do know that um I I do know that around uh 410 was officially known as the end of the uh the uh Roman Britain and it became pretty much the uh whoever was left behind the uh the the Celts the Britons everybody who was there pretty much took over and there really isn't much in terms of what came out of there there's some there was some oral history but I think there was one expedition that showed up in uh, Britain around that time it was you know, nobody went over there, and I want to say it was about 150 years. I've got, I found, uh, I found this copy, which I don't know how I found this. I don't even remember, but it's called the Works of Gildas and Nennius. Now, Nennius talks about how the uh, British Britain began began uh, with Brutus. Long story, but anyway, um, but Gildas, there's, there's, like I said, there's not much. Information that came out of Britain. I want to say it was about 150 years. Don't quote me on the years, um, but but it wasn't until there was an expedition where they they went from continental Europe into Britain, and it you know it was vastly different than what it was when the Romans were there, and slowly they you know civilization came back at least the European-style civilization. They had their own type of civilization. But during that time was when they think that King Arthur existed. Uh, The Anglo-Saxons were in in there. Uh, Pretty interesting stories, but not much to really go on.
0: Well, seeing that I have taken a vow uh, to not interrupt you while you're talking, I actually wasn't looking forward to that long of an explanation it was a lead up to a joke um which i was going to say well since there's not a lot to go on i guess he could follow suit with a lot of what other historians are doing and just make it up
1: but so you were wanting me to just uh not joke really is say now anything fallen is, flat. Is, that, is that what you were wanting me to just you know say yep yep you're right it was just a very dark age and
0: No, I, uh, my expectations, uh, for our conversations, uh, really couldn't be lower. Um, in fact, I try to walk in with zero expectations. Um, so then I lived up to them.
1: Is that what you're saying? I
0: was going to say, All right. and we have officially lived up to our expectations. All right. Uh, quit screwing around. Uh, so we're going to jump into the book and movie recommendations. Do you have anything?
1: i do i do in fact um
0: all right well then we will get to them
1: okay so in terms of book recommendations of course here's my book recommendation it's uh by a guy named don hallway have you heard of him it's gates of rome yeah it's a you know, listen, I, you know, I, I've mentioned that, you know, there, there's a lot about the Roman period that that I don't know. And I've, I've always been fascinated with, uh, you know, what happened in 410 with Alaric and uh, got it right here. So if you want to know more about, you know, you know, Rome wasn't just sacked once. It, it it was sacked several times and 410 was one of them. So get the book. And uh, it, as Dustin says, it's a it's a it's a great read. You'll enjoy it, and you'll learn. You'll learn quite a bit. Now, in terms of movies, now I have not seen this yet, but you know who recommended this to us? Do you remember Dustin?
0: No, I uh, I don't.
1: Okay, Doctor Stephen Harden, he endorsed this. He said that this was one of the best histories that he had ever seen he he said it it's pretty accurate um again i have not seen it this i got the complete series apparently it it's a it's not just one movie it's uh it's some sort of a series i don't i don't know how many it is but but you know you get in blu-ray and you've got uh yeah so this has been endorsed by dr stephen harden actually i've heard many people endorse it also you know based on the uh this week in history i also wanted to throw in one more which i really liked, Thirteen Hours. Um, I really, really enjoyed this. Uh, this took place in Benghazi, September the eleventh of, of uh, twenty twelve. Um, a lot of good actors. Um, Emily Blunt's husband is in that one, so you know. B- big fan of Emily Blunt, so, but yeah, watch. Watch. It's a good movie. Go. Are you done? <laughs> are you done i'm done i am waiting for you now here the spotlight's on you buddy
0: hey man i'm just you know i am just living in your shadow thanks for putting the spotlight on me um john krasinski i know the name escapes you even though you have the the movie right in front of you all right so my book recommendation is at the gates of rome like i said uh i don't know if we were recording when i said it but uh it's Probably my top five, in my top five of the past year uh, reading. I do a ton of reading as uh, if you watch, or I mean, if you read the Epic Times, you'll know because I do book reviews for them, but I loved this book. Really fun to read. Uh, My movie recommendation is actually not a movie. It's actually um, a series on a YouTube channel. Uh, It's called Epic History TV. Epic History TV has a, I think it's a six-part series on Belisarius, uh, which is another Roman general, and this was, I believe, during the Byzantine Empire, but really good stuff. Actually, all of the stuff over at Epic History TV is fantastic. I have re-watched stuff on that, uh, that channel so many times, but it's really good stuff, and it may just be because I love the guy's voice, the narrator's voice. AD 410. So maybe I need to start talking like that. All right, Alan. Uh, that brings the show to an end. Um, do you have anything else that you would like to say without me interrupting you? Because I know people hate it when I do that. And I hate it when I do it too because it makes it seem like I don't respect you. And you know that I do.
1: I know. I know. Now go it. Now I'm pretty much said what I needed to say. Uh, you know, you got. You wanna read about Roman history? Great. Yeah, read the read uh, Don Hallway's book and then you have the films and you know, I, I'm actually I'm gonna go see my mother. So I have plans to go see mother, but uh running kinda of late. Hey, why is your head on the desk? Are you
0: okay there? <laughs> I'm so glad you brought that up. I have no idea what that has to do with anything except You got to go and I need to go um, just to end this conversation. That's it for this episode. We'll see you next week.